This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. We live in a world in which increasingly hard data is privileged over anecdotal evidence and in which community leaders want to be able to make decisions that are predicated on information and not just gut feeling. Of course, we see this in sports in which the analytics movement has come to dominate various leagues, particularly Major League Baseball, basketball as well, even NFL football. And as a Jewish community, as we see Lahavdil, not to draw a comparison to a sports league, but Jewish communal leaders are looking for the same kinds of reliable information grounded in demonstrable trends and feedback in order to make the most informed and most responsible decisions. And until recently, there has been a dearth of that information in the Jewish world broadly, but certainly within the more observant communities. Today's guest, Mark Trencher, has done a great deal to remedy that. He's not the only one operating this space. The Orthodox Union, for example, has an entire department now dedicated to empirical study. And of course, there are outfits in Israel doing this kinds of work as well. But Mark is really attacking this comprehensively, not as a single issue pollster, but as someone who really wants to understand the community panoramically and is willing to tackle myriad issues, including those that are thorny, complex, and highly sensitive. And of course, our show is not just about that which people do, but is really about the people who do it. And it was really fascinating to hear Mark's story, his own upbringing, the way that he relates his own Judaism to the work that he's doing, and how personal this really is to him as a Jewish community member, a leader, father, and grandfather. Meanwhile, a reminder to follow us, as always, on Instagram and Facebook at Jews You Should Know, Twitter Jews You Should Know with the letter U. Subscribe or follow wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Please recommend this podcast to friends and family and make sure they subscribe or follow as well. Comments and questions to JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with founder of Nishma, demographer, pollster, and committed Jew, Mark Trencher. We are here with Mark Trencher, the founder of Nishma, which is a research firm exploring trends and data within the Orthodox Jewish community, and I'm sure how that impacts the wider Jewish world as well. How are you, Mark? I'm great. How are you doing today? Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, funny enough, I know and I'm very fond of your son and his whole family uh, who lived in Silver Spring for a while, and we have some other... uh, familial connections and so forth. So uh, the name Trencher was a a positive one with great associations for me uh, well before I heard your name, although I guess you came before all of them. But uh, where are you calling to us from today, Mark? I am home here in West Hartford, Connecticut. Okay, West Hartford. So that's uh, exactly where I knew that your son grew up. So, And he's back in that area, right? He's he's in Stanford? he's He's in Stanford, which is about an hour and 20 minutes away. Right. Well, that, that's relatively close, I would say. <laughs> Still within the uh, the great state of Connecticut. So, did you grow up, Mark, in Connecticut? And what was your what was your childhood, uh, your origins? 
Okay, so I am an immigrant child. Uh, I was born in Germany after the war. People always say to me, were you born in a DP camp? And, and actually, I don't know. It sounds crazy. I don't know. One of the things that people might not be aware of is in our generation of kids who grew up in the 50s, there was virtually no conversation at all that we heard of about the Holocaust. It was like so traumatic that people didn't talk about it. I remember people coming over to my house and my father speaking with them and they were having conversations that we were not invited to. We knew nothing about the Holocaust. I wasn't even aware there was such a thing until maybe I was like eight years old or something like that. And, and I read about it. So I don't know whether I was born in a DP camp. Uh, I was raised in Munich. Uh, my mother was born in Germany, my father in Poland. They were both in Siberia during the war. Went back to Germany, got set up on a date, got married. My mother was a German citizen. So um, it may be that we were just residents of the city. Uh, it was a Yiddish-speaking household. Uh, I do speak Yiddish. I'm fluent in Yiddish. I used to get up once a year in my shul and put on my uh, my strimal and uh, give a drusha in Yiddish as the flatbusher. I was known formally as the flatbusher Rebbe Shlita. And anybody who missed the Shlita heard from me. I, I had to have a Shlita. My parents spoke Yiddish to each other. We only spoke Yiddish to my father. We spoke English to my mother, who learned Yiddish in in, in high school in Germany. And my mother and her, her sisters all got together and chattered in, um, in German. So it was a multilingual household. So that was our upbringing. My, my mother is a Landau. She's a direct eighth-generation descendant of Rabbi Cheska Landau, the Noda of Yehuda who it is said that he traced his lineage back to Rashi, the uh, 11th century medieval commentator. And it is said that he traced his lineage back to uh, King David. I find that tracing your lineage back 110 generations kind of apocryphal. I mean, whether the, but I tell people I'm a direct descendant of King David. So that was my upbringing. You know, it, I, was, I was raised in Yiddish. We came in, we lived in King's Highway. You know, Brooklyn in those days was pre-denominational. There wasn't any modern Orthodox. There wasn't any, I think there were conservative and reformed Jews. We just didn't know about them. In our community, everybody was either a Heimish, a Heimish Jew, like my parents who came over from the war, just a firm Jew, who, you know, who didn't have any pretenses, or Americans, or, or, or the young American Jews. So that was the nature, of, that was the nature of, of the community. My father, who did not speak a word of English, became the first rabbi of the young Israel of Ocean Parkway. I still remember he came home one day, they were looking for a new rabbi. They ended up hiring Rabbi Herbert W. Bomser, who was there for many, many years. I remember my father telling my mother, after the job interview, he told her, in Yiddish, ich nicht avort I don't understand a word he said, aber, but zetos, it seems, as there is an arntliche yingeman. He was a righteous, kind of a, kind of a very proper young man, and he ended up being hired. So my father was the Gabbai of the Young Israel. Around that time, uh, in the mid-50s, uh, was when there was a huge movement to the U.S. of Hasidim from Hungary and elsewhere. So when the, when the very, very first shtibel opened up in Flatbush in like 1956, we walked. So we, we had a 20-minute walk every Shabbos. That was more our crowd. It was a, it was a, it was a shtibel. Uh, our Rebbetzin was the Satmar Rebbe's niece. And I like to tell people that I was the fourth Bar Mitzvah boy in the very first shtibel in Flatbush, which kind of makes me the fourth oldest chassid from Flatbush, and that always gets me. <laughs> but, you know, the guys who were Bar Mitzvah before me, one became a dentist, one became an engineer, one became a lawyer. The guy who was Bar Mitzvah right after me was uh, Dov Zakheim, who became the chief financial officer of the Pentagon. So that was kind of that was kind of the group of kids we had 
really young, bright, enthusiastic American kids with parents who are Yiddish speaking, trying to survive in America and not knowing the language very well. And there was definitely, there was a huge disconnect. There was a huge disconnect between the generation of our parents and us kids. And I, like, I would say right now, I sometimes get asked who mentored me. I can't think of a single, unfortunately, I don't know whether it's unfortunate. On the one hand, I can't think of a single person who ever gave me mentorship advice. We kids advised ourselves. And we were an independent bunch of kids. Uh, I went to Yeshiva Rambam in, in Brooklyn. My father wanted me to learn in Yiddish. So I went to RJJ. Of course, when any of my, my father's friends asked me, Moshe, where do you go to school? Do you guys to Yeshiva? I said, Rav Yankif, Yosef Yeshiva. Uh, and they all knew about it. You know, we had uh, my Rebbeim among the older listeners. I had some of the Rebbeim I had were well-known, well-known Brilliant people, Rab Tuvia Goldstein, Rab Zadel Epstein, Rabbi Nebenensky, Shimonovitz, Rabbi Tendler. My my Rebbe, the one that I was going most connected to, was the only one of those was an American guy, Rabbi Herschel Kurzrak, who was my Rebbe. And uh, he ended up being my Masada Kedushin, marrying me. And he's I think he's I think he is currently the head of the Besdin of the National Council of Young Israel, of which I'm a member of the board of the National Council. So it goes around, comes around. So I went to Brooklyn College. My parents said, Moshe, you can go to any college you want to, but we have no money. So I went to Brooklyn College. <laughs> I, went to, I went to NYU. I went to NYU. In the very, very first Vietnam War draft, I got a number 15. I'm listening to it on the radio, 15. I said, oh, my goodness, 15. That, that was a low number. I was in yeshiva. At that point, I was like in my 12th year in yeshiva. And, uh, you know, for those who don't know, I mean, being learning, being in yeshiva and learning going towards a degree was one of the ways you could get deferred from the draft. So I ended up staying in yeshiva for another four years. I ended up being in yeshiva for 16 years. It was never my intention to get smicha. It was never my intention to be a practicing rabbi, except for a few brief stints. I never was a practicing rabbi, but I did get the smicha from RJJ. So it is what it is. I was in yeshiva for 18 years. That's a long time. uh, (laughs) A long time. I went to graduate school, got a degree, got married. I taught at Mag and David Yeshiva in Brooklyn, a Syrian school. My first day, one of my students said, Mr. Trencher, are you SY? For your Syrian listeners, they all know SY means Syrian. I said, no, I'm P-O-G-A. He said, what's that? I said, Polish Galiciana. They had no idea what that was. They had no <laughs> idea what that was. I taught at Yeshiva Brooklyn, a, yeshiva, a very Yeshiva school, Ezra Academy, a modern school. So I met my, I met my, uh, my wife, Sandy, in the student center at Brooklyn College. I just saw her walking across the... I said, who's that? You know, I met her. I got introduced to her. Her, her name was Sandy Kamenetsky. Her uncle was Rabbi Dr. Joseph Kamenetsky, the, the person who was probably most responsible for the explosion of day schools across America. Also, he was the second cousin of Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. And people ask me how we got married. I like to tell people that no shidduch resumes were harmed in our marriage. There was actually no such thing. And the fact that our, our 52nd anniversary is coming up uh, a week from uh, Thursday, you know, you don't you don't always need. So sometimes just getting introduced works. So I decided, you know, other than my few gigs in the schools, I always decided, I always wanted to I always wanted to work in the corporate world, and have time available to do what I wanted to do when I got home. So I did work at five large corporations, financial corporations that were all interesting jobs. Uh, four of the five, my jobs it happens in the corporate world. Four of the five. My job, my department was eliminated. I would say that a career working in different companies, doing different things is really great because you always do different things. And I would say changing jobs is a good thing. So 
I did enjoy all the jobs that I had. And then we moved to West Hartford, Connecticut. I grew up in the Brooklyn area, lived in Edison for a couple of years and moved to West Hartford 46 years ago. I'm still there. You know, I would tell people, you know, to me, I view the I view having moved to West Hartford as one of the smart things that we did. It's a very small community. We have about 150 Orthodox families. You know, the, the main benefit of living in a small community is you, you can get involved, you can get involved in the community. And I got involved in the community. I became at one point the president of my shul, Younger Shul of West Hartford. I became the president of our Orthodox Jewish Day School, the Hebrew Academy. I'm currently still on because I can't get rid of the job. I'm currently still the president of the Vada Kashras here. Uh, I was active in Federation. And I was, I believe I was the only Orthodox Jew ever to be a multi-year chair of the Community Jewish Film Festival. And that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. So uh, other than that, it's an, easy, it's an easy life here in West Hartford. And I tell people it's a very non-competitive community. You could be whoever you want. There's no keeping up with the Schwartzes. The major downside was that we had no high school. So my son went to MTA and boarded. My older daughter went to Breweria in Elizabeth and boarded in somebody's home. And it was, it was usually problematic and expensive getting her there and back in addition to the tuition. My youngest daughter went to, went to Sheva High School in Kew Garden Hills and boarded in somebody's house. Again, that was usually complicated. So we do, we do now have a, a nursery through grade 12. So, that's, so that is good. Uh, and I've always been kind of an experimental guy. I like doing crazy things. I mentioned the film festival. I complained to my wife about our local state representative that he's a <clears throat> that he's terrible. She said, "Well, why don't you do something about it?" So I ran for the Connecticut State Legislature. Baruch Hashem, I lost. Thank God I lost because I I don't know that I really wanted. I think I wanted to run for it more than I wanted the job, as well. We have here a local organization called Primer, which um, is a if you've heard of Camera, which is Israel advocacy. We monitor 12 daily newspapers in Connecticut and other newspapers, and we write op-ed pieces. So I do that, I do that as, well, as well. I've always been kind of interested in questions. I remember when I was maybe 10 or 12 years old, I remember I, I once to ask my sister a question, and she said to me, Mush, you're not allowed to ask that question. And I, always, you know, I don't remember what, what the question was. I doubt that it was a theological question. I mean, I was only about 10 years old, I mean, I wasn't going to ask my sister whether she believed in God or whether she believed that everything that happened to her is for the best. But she said, you're not allowed to ask that question, which I think I still, the fact that I still remember that, like uh, 66 years later, so now you can figure out my age. I've always been the kind of kid who like to ask questions, and they still get me in trouble. And I ask questions on uh, Facebook, and sometimes people get upset. And the jobs I had in the corporate world, about half of them were researchy kind of jobs. So I, I, I like headed up the corporate research department, two companies where we do surveys and focus groups and all that kind of stuff. So I was, yeah, was going to ask you, which, uh, which companies did you work in? I first worked for the Prudential Insurance Company in Newark. Then I moved to Hartford, Connecticut and worked for Aetna, which was a very big multi-line insurance company. Uh, I then worked for Conning, which was an investment firm. It was a subsidiary of MetLife. Then I worked for Cigna Healthcare in marketing. I was paid probably double what I should have been paid for that job. So they finally replaced me with somebody much younger than me. I would have retired. We, we went on a cruise to Alaska. And I said, you know what? I'm going to pay the $100 for the satellite internet for a week, which was a crazy price. Yeah, you never know. So on the boat, I got, a, I got an email about a job opening at the Hartford Insurance Company. And it was a job 100% in research, which kind of was reminiscent of my earlier jobs. And I really gave me, it gave me a chance to catch up on all the, 
all the techniques, you know, the online research world and all the lingo and everything. So I took that job and I was there until I, until I, until I retired. My, my first day at the Hartford, my boss said to me, Mark, you're going to be in charge of our VOC program, VOC. I said, wow, that's great. Thank you so much. Then when I got back to my desk, I said to the guy next to me, okay, uh, what exactly is VOC? I was too embarrassed to say, I don't know what my job is. She said, oh, yeah, yeah. VOC means voice of customer. We have a formal program. We don't just listen to complaints, but we have a formal program that does outreach. We have surveys that we do. We have a panel. We have focus group. But it's really an existing program that the job of the program is to stay connected to the customer and and not to wait till you get a complaint on the phone call, but to reach out and find out what the uh, customers want. When I started my podcast, which I'll talk about later, I, I originally was going to call it VOC Voice of Kahila. Other than the fact that Kahila is spelled with a K, then I decided, well, nobody really knows what Kahila means. It means community. I thought you were going to say before it was very, very old constituents. <laughs> uh, well, I, I actually you were yeah, the older uh, guy. Over there. I, I was the older guy, so I ended up. So that was so. Th- those are the jobs that I had. So and, your background was, was really in numbers and research. What well, was your yeah, expertise yeah. in? Well, my undergraduate degree is in mathematics and statistics. When I when I graduated, uh, I decided. Well, I should probably go. To, I should probably go to graduate school. My parents said, "What are you going to do?" I said, "I don't know. Maybe I'll go to school." They said, "Fine." Then I said to my friend, my friend Alan, I said, "Well, what are you doing?" He said, "I'm going to NYU. It's a two-year program in operations research. There's a department called Operations Research and Industrial Engineering up in the Bronx." I said, "What is it?" He said, "You know, it's it's, it's kind of like math. It's applied math." He didn't exactly know what it. He went up. He went on to get his PhD. He teaches it as a professor in in Jerusalem, and I got my degree. It is kind of math. It's kind of statistically statistics. It's not market research. It's operations research. It's kind of it's industrial engineering. But when I went for a job, when I was looking for jobs in those days, and it was hard to get a job in those days because the the Vietnam War, and I had grown a little beard because I was married and wanted to look older than fourteen. I had a little beard, and people looked at me and said, "Uh oh." Another one of those guys who's going to chain himself to his desk and protest and and put up anti-Nixon posters and be against the war. But it was a little bit hard in those days to get a job until somebody called me and said, Mark, we have a job. You, you have a degree in some kind of research, and I got a job in market research. Are you interested? And I always had been interested in market research. I mentioned I like asking questions. I, I knew that market research, we do surveys and we do interviews, and really we try to get answers to questions. By the way, I, I noticed... I like how you how you how you label your podcast episodes. If you want an idea for a, for a name for this for this episode, you can call it "The Guy with Lots of Questions" or something like that. Anyway, that was I like how you personalize the uh, the name of the person you interview. So that's it was my the background was in mathematics. Um, I did teach for six years. I taught in colleges. I taught math. I taught operations research, and I did teach statistics, graduate and undergraduate. So I always I always stayed connected to, to the math part. So when I retired, I said, you know what? All the years that I was on the board of my shul and my school, you know, whenever there was an issue that required information, we always sat, the board sat around and we talked to each other. And we, I don't remember kind of saying, well, this is what we hear back from our parents. Or this is what we hear back from the membership. We knew what people think. We were ready to make important decisions. So it occurred to me that, you know, maybe not. Maybe we do need to do a better job of listening to what the people say, the members of a shul, the members of a community, the members of the, the parents, the, pa- the parents and, and, and the students of our schools. So I decided to set up uh, 
Nishma research. I was thinking of you know, the name, it occurred to me, you know, Nishma from Parshas Mishrat, near Nasev and Nishma, the Jews responding to the offer of getting the Torah. Yes, we will do it, and we will do it, and we will listen. And I sometimes say that was great in those days. I think in these days, uh, an equally valid approach would be Nishma Venase. Let's listen to what people say. Let's get the opinion of the community, and then let's make our decisions. So I set, I set it up. That was in 2015 when I set it up upon my retirement. So you, you retired first and then decided to go into this as a kind of a community service. Yeah, it had been in the back of my mind. I did not make, I, it really was kind of very, it was pretty much, I, in my mind, I pretty much decided I was going to do this. I didn't really concretize my decision. Uh, but then I decided, yeah, I'm going to do it. You know, my last job at the Hartford was really in research. I had totally caught up on the uh, modern day methodology and technology and the language. And I was still involved in the community. Uh, I said, you know, this would be something good to do. I decided, let me do this. It's totally not a business. I mean, I have filed my last my last six years. I filed every year with my taxes, a Schedule C, which shows a loss. And my understanding is that at some point, the IRS is going to say, it's not a business, it's a hobby. Which is true. And fortunately, I think this year I might actually end up in the uh, with a little bit of a profit, which is not really a profit because I have, I have expenses. So it's really, it, it, it is, you could say it's a hobby. It's really a retirement project. And for me, it's a, it, it's giving back to the community. It's an act of love for the community. So what I do is all the, all the studies I do, all the communal studies I do, I always get the questions from the community. I always ask, what do you want to know? I have an advisory board, ask people... Yeah, I, I have questions myself, but I always say, what do you want to know? What do you want to know about the community? I reach out and I always make the results fully available. So on my website, Nishma Research, everything is out there. So that I have kind of that. a two-part question on this because, first yeah. of all, talking about questions and, and you enjoy asking questions and answering and grappling with questions. So what question were you trying to answer when you started this? What was bothering you that wasn't out there? That you were wondering about that yeah, so, you said I need to start something of my own. Well, I gave some thought. I, th- I thought for about for a good half a year. I thought about well, how, how do I want to start, and I had a lot of questions. You know, I had a lot of questions. You know, what do people love the most about being Orthodox Jewish? What are the things that cause them unhappiness or pain? The role of women was a big issue. I read the book Unorthodox by Deborah Feldman. I remember I used to come to Shul, and the guy behind me, David, and Shul, would say to me, Moshe. How far are you into the book by Deborah Feldman? Oh my goodness, you got to read this stuff. It's crazy. Uh, and there were other books about people leaving orthodoxy. There was a book called All Who Go Do Not Return by Shulam Dean. It won the National Book Award. So that was kind of a, a topic that people were talking about. Why are people leaving orthodoxy? In fact, there were more people coming to orthodoxy than leaving, which I found out later. But the question is, why were people leaving orthodoxy? So I decided, you know, really what we need to do if we really want to understand why people are leaving orthodoxy, maybe we need to do some research. So there were people getting up at the Agudda convention every, every other year, probably, talking about, you know, we have a, a generation that's at risk. I think the words off the derech were kind of just starting to be used, people leaving. The people who are at risk, why are they at risk? And people give reasons. One person got up and said, the reason why is because of lack of shalom bias in the household, which means lack of uh, lack of marital togetherness and marital joy and peace. And if parents would do a better job at that, kids would be less prone to leave, which there is truth to that. There is truth to that. But I thought to myself, it's got to be more complicated. 
So I reached out to the uh, to Shulam Dean, the author of All Who Go Do Not Return, a wonderful, sweet guy. After what he's been through, he's just very polite and very sensitive. I said, you know, I have an idea for us to do a survey of people who've left the Orthodox community and really find out in their own words. Just get in, give them a chance to tell us why. So in the end, we actually did that survey, and we got close to 900 people. How we got these people who are large, who have been traumatized, who are not on any mailing lists, and who basically want to be left alone. Leave me alone. Yes, I'm Jewish. Yes, I have a strong feeling for Judaism. Yes, I go to Friday night dinners. I love Jewish music. I do some learning. I just, I'm just not orthodox anymore. I'm post-denominational. But how we got them is a whole separate story. But that was the first survey we did in 2016. It was a fascinating survey. And um, it answered a lot of questions. You know, and that survey basically... I'd love to hear what synops- you discovered through that survey. I came up with a 30-second elevator speech about that study, which is we asked people in their own words, why did you leave? We didn't give them a checklist. Tell us why. And they got a box. They could type as much as they wanted. And people told us, they basically told us their stories, hundreds and hundreds of people, which by the way, except for those who identified themselves, it's all available. You can read the document. And in the end, I divided them into two separate categories. One category was I left because I was lured out of orthodoxy by the outside community. Science, art, something in, in culture, in popular culture, the internet. Basically, I was pulled out. Pulled versus world. pushed. Pulled. And the other one was I was pushed out. There was something I saw something in the community. Incidences of abuse were not addressed. People use the word hypocrisy among the leadership. But yeah, pull versus push. And when I did the math, for every 10 people who were pulled out, who were lured out of the community, I found 17 people who were pushed out. Now, I always, I always say, I think that's a good thing. Why? Because you can't change the outside world. I think somebody on, I believe, the Unorthodox podcast said, in a battle between religious belief and secular society, the best we can hope for is kind of a draw. But uh, for every 10 people who said they were lured out, 17 people said they were pushed out. So I always say, the good news is that we there are issues the main issues that push uh, those that push people out that are in our community, those are things we can work on. Those are things we can address. So let let's do it. And it's starting to happen. It's starting to happen. You know, with the issue of the uh, not the issue of sexual abuse of kids, because I think we were sophisticated enough to know that every community has that. Every community has that. That's not the issue. The issue is addressing it. So now we're starting to we are starting to better address it. In, in all segments with, you know, some reluctance sometimes, but that was the major finding. But we did, I also found that the main reason people leave orthodoxy was, talk about Taivas, the, the, the eight Sahara, you know, the evil inclination. Physical desires, sexual desires. desires. Yeah. The number one reason that people gave in the, and our survey was yeshivish and Hasidic, modern orthodox. Most of the uh, memoirs were actually written by people in the Hasidic community, which is why they were bestsellers because that community is found to be exotic by your average book reader. The main reason was intellectual questioning over a period of years with no ability to ask questions, no resource. I have questions about biblical criticism, about evolution. If I ask the question, I either don't get an answer or I, I can't even ask the question. So, and, and, I've, and I've been living with this for years. So one reason that was high up on the list was this intellectual doubt and questioning. Among modern Orthodox women, the role of women was high up on the list. But it was a long list. And basically, I, I had to read through 
700 Megillas. They're not, some of them were like two sentences, but some of them were really, really long. Because remember, we asked people in your own words, why did you leave your community? And we read through them and we had to categorize them. So we had to, had to read through. And a, lot, and a lot of the people answered with multiple reasons. I had doubts and I saw this. So part of it, all, all different reasons. So that was the first survey I did. And it was really, really, it was, it was really fascinating. And uh, it got me back into the research world. One of the questions I ask is, is the community open to research? Uh, I did not have a lot of people who still were at that time kind of reluctant to really dive into that topic. It's not a comfortable, not a comfortable topic. I did get a phone call from a rabbi in uh, in Lakewood who said, "This I enjoyed your study. It's really a deeper, more nuanced look at what's going on. I would love to get you to the Aguda Convention." I said, "Reb." Reb Shimon, whatever his name was, I would love to present this to the Aguda Convention. Just so you know, 70% of my family is yeshivish. I personally identify as modern orthodox. Uh, I'm very comfortable in the yeshivish world. You know, I would be happy to speak at the Aguda Convention. I, I don't have a beard or a black hat, but I can tell you that if, if you get me in there, it will be a, I'll give a talk on the topic. People will enjoy it. It'll be very respectful. And, and and let's talk about it. Let, let's open up the conversation. Nishma, let, let, let's listen to what people say. Some of the talks I've given, one of the talks I gave a few times, it's called something like The Revolving Door, where I mix, why are people leaving? Because in, 2000, in 2019, I went online and I looked up Ba'alei Teshuva, your field, and I found a lot of articles. I was looking for the first ever survey, an actual well-done survey of Ba'alei Teshuva, why people became Orthodox. Couldn't find it. Maybe it wasn't out there, but I decided, you know, this is really, really interesting. Why do people become Baali Teshuvah? So a lot of the, some, some of the talks I give are called The Revolving Door, The Ins and Outs, The Comings and Goings, because they want to hear why people leave, but they also want to know why people come, and are there some commonalities between them? So that ended up being the fourth survey I did. What did you discover about the Baali Teshuvah? I discovered, well, it was a survey we ended up getting about uh, se- about 800 Baali Teshuvah which is defined, well, first of all, when I looked at the Pew survey in 2011, the Pew survey said that 40% of modern Orthodox Jews are Baal Teshuva, which I was ready to call them and say, you guys are out of your minds. 40%, seriously, 40%. I remember I, I went to Israel to visit my oldest granddaughter when she was in Yeshiva Shalvin for, for a woman. We had a Friday night minion at the Kotel there were 12 of us there at this Friday night minion. I and one other young fellow were the only ones without beers and without black hats. The other 10 were all, and we ended up talking. The other 10 were all, you know, very from appearing. We ended up talking afterwards. It turned out that among those other 10, not a single one of them had grown up Orthodox. They were all Bali Chuba. They were all more yeshivish than I was. One of those 10 is actually the current Rosh Yeshiva of my uh Grandson's yeshiva, Oraita, which is a wonderful school. I'll give them a brief plug. But you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just if you if you actually talk to people and 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 knowledgeable people and rabbis, you find out yeah, a whole lot of these people did not grow up Orthodox. So we asked, that, "Were you at what age did you become Orthodox?" And if they said Bar Bat Mitzvah later, we, we labeled them as Balei Tshuva, and they were they were actually about forty percent of all of our modern Orthodox respondents on the survey. We basically asked them, why did you become Orthodox? And we asked them the nature of their journey. How did they identify when they became Orthodox? How do they identify now? So have they moved further to the right or have they moved to the left? We asked them a whole bunch of questions about 
what were the biggest challenges when you became a Baal Tshuva, learning the ins and outs, how to dive and everything, I ranked number two on the list, dealing with the family and friends that they, quote, left behind was number one on the list. You know, we asked them, one of the questions we asked them is, are there things you've taken with you from your life as a, before you became Orthodox that you still have with you? So I remember one person said, a lot of people said liberal political views, kind of a generally liberal attitude. I don't put too much stock on that because those who became Orthodox with a more right-leaning political bend have very often moved into the yeshivish world by now. Some people said, I've kept my sense of humor which is kind of funny. One person said, I'm still a New York Jets fan, which is kind of funny, a little bit sad, but funny. <laughs> but uh, the, the main thing, but interestingly enough, the number one reason that people gave, the, the number one reason that people gave for becoming Orthodox was intellectual, our body of texts and commentary. When you get into it, when you're learning, as you know, like the Aish experience, it's just a lot there. It's very deep. That was the... Uh, the thing people most interesting, most often mentioned, which I find interesting because remember, the uh, the people who left went off the derach at the top of the list were intellectuals, intellectual inquiry that was not satisfied, and yet the people who became orthodox at the top of the list was an appeal to their intellect. By the way, right behind that was the authenticity. They uh, they view orthodoxy as the authentic Judaism. So we did learn a lot. By the way, all these surveys are available. The reports are available online, including the methodology. I tell you how we got the people so you can see, you can think about whether or not the respondents are a representative group, which we explain that. Uh, but again, we, again, I just, you know, I'm asking questions that, we, that people in the community want to know the answers to. I always get a dozen people. Why do you want to know? So that's how we come up with the questions. And our surveys do tend to be... Uh, a little bit, a little bit long. I mean, the, the biggest survey I did was 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 kind of uh, my attempt to do a Pew survey type study. People say, "Oh yeah, you want to know about modern orthodoxy?" We, we had the Pew survey, right? The Pew survey, four thousand people. How many of them were modern orthodox? Would you guess how many of those four thousand? Like one hundred and thirty, one hundred and thirty, which means like you have like sixty men. You can't compare men to women. You can't compare older to younger. How many of them have kids in school? Like maybe 40? You can't ask questions. So, I mean, the, in our survey of the Orthodox community, at the end, we found out that the biggest concern was the cost of Jewish day school education. What did the people, what did the Pew survey say about the cost of Jewish day school education? Well, nothing, because they didn't ask it, because it's not an issue of concern to them. You know, our number two issue of concern among 27 was, uh, and I was surprised at this when we asked the modern Orthodox world, what is your number two? What are your top issues? One was the cost of day school education. Two was the plight of agunot, chained women, the women who can't get a kid. That was number two on the list. It may to some extent be a proxy of sorts for views, for generalized views about the treatment of women. That, that's a possibility. But also it may be that we, a lot of us, we may not have an aguna in our family, but we know of somebody in the, with that problem. And it's heart-wrenching. It's very poignant. So, I mean, and into, on an emotional level, it rises to, to a very, very high percentage of concern. Uh, what did the Pew survey say about that? Well, that word does not appear in the Pew survey at all, because well, what does it even mean? So I decided when I did my study to get a large sample of Orthodox, but really to ask all of the questions that you never get in Pew, or that haven't been asked up to now, because they're really Orthodox-specific questions. So we did ask 
in addition to the a few questions about beliefs and practices, which we ask, and we did ask people about the about their shul life, how comfortable they are in shul, their shul. We asked them all sorts of questions. So that was that was the largest scale survey that we did. Um, a, a follow up to that one was Torah Umada. How's it working out for you? You're an Orthodox Jew. You interact with society. Is that good or bad? Is it dangerous or helpful? Does it enhance your Judaism, or is it a, or or is it a potential threat? So that was another survey we did. So as you can see, my research practice has really uh, has really been great for a guy who has lots of questions. It's been a lot of fun. What do you feel like is your goal with the data? In other words, is this really more designed to be descriptive, or is it prescriptive in some sense that? Okay, now we have this interesting information. Someone could do something with it. Yeah, my goal really is okay. So first of all, my goal is to be uh, impartial and non-judgmental. I look at my final drafts before I release a study. So, for example, the survey of Off the Derach. Uh, you will not find in my report. You won't find the word problem. The problem is, or we need to deal with. Uh, regardless of my personal beliefs. I tried not to have that in my reports. So I tried to have my reports be descriptive, describing. Having said that, for example, I spoke at a school in the Midwest, and they wanted me to talk about what can we do about kids leaving Orthodoxy. So the, the talk I gave, I say, was both descriptive, describing the problem, and prescriptive. So I was, you know, I was, I, I said, for example, we need to raise a generation of teachers who are smart and open in their personality. To challenging questions, that's not enough to answer them. But in general, I, in general, my research is uh, I tend to make it impartial and descriptive. There's enough information there. If somebody wants to say, okay, I've done three surveys actually about coronavirus. The most recent one, I was hired by uh, by Hatsala, which, as you know, is the largest private ambulance service in the United States. And we did a, we actually did a survey of uh, the yeshivish and the Hasidic. And we did a survey of the entire community to get attitudes towards vaccines. Uh, interestingly enough, we got 2,000 responses from Hasidim. Now, we got 490 responses to an online English language survey from Satmar Hasidim. So if you think they're not online, now 70% were men because they do it at work. But the issue of the internet and the Hasidic world, when you ask these people a question on a topic that interests them, they're eager to answer. But yeah, so the report is descriptive. The report describes what people uh, are saying. The organization, like Hatzalah, may take my report and they may use it if their goal is, I'm not speaking for them, but if their goal is to make people aware of the dangers of COVID and uh, the fact that there is long-term COVID and the value of vaccines, then they may have a, a prescriptive approach, like a PR campaign, like videos, which they did, but that's up to them. My goal is to, is to create descriptive, fact-based information from my surveys. We did a survey of Orthodox Jewish singles. Some of them don't like being called singles because one person said, I'm not a slice of cheese. So we call them single individuals. A very deep survey and... Um, the organization that asked me to do the survey actually uh, hired a very well-known Orthodox Jewish sociology professor to create a document called 10 Things Our Shuls Can Do to Make Single Individuals More Welcome and More Valued. So my survey was uh, descriptive. 
But again, here's, a, here's an example. People say to me, so what happened with this survey? Some, and unfortunately, sometimes I have to say, I, I don't really know. I mean, there's a lot of information out there. Are people using it? I don't know. In this case, I'm happy to say that, that there was a plan underway to take the results of these things. We asked people an open-ended question, what can your community do to make you feel more comfortable? And the report, it's all available, all available verbatim, quotes from hundreds of people. And the fact that we then hired somebody to kind of make a report out of it, it's a recommendation. So there again, you have a report that's, I try to make impartial and descriptive, but yet we're trying to use it to improve, to, to effect some kind of change in the community. How did you learn survey methodology? You know, you knew statistics, you knew math, but surveys are a very particular, right, discipline. Yes. And obviously with a lot of potential for false responses, for predetermined responses, you know, sort of, uh, you can easily uh, prejudice the answers and, and so forth. And you need, rep- like you said, representative samples and who's on the internet in the Jewish community and who's actually doing it, who are the kinds of people that are predisposed to filling these out. How do you, how did you learn all these things and learn to um, hedge against those issues? Yeah, so I've been doing survey research since my, since my very first job at Prudential. We did a lot of surveys. Surveys used to be telephone surveys. A telephone survey is called an opt-out survey because you have a list that you design that represents the community. There's methods used. So I have a list here of 10,000 phone numbers, uh, and I have some I have some sense that, they, that these 10,000 are representative of the community, and we do it through, through phone books and through master lists. We put together a list. Uh, the, the pre-survey in 2011 was a telephone survey. The pre-survey in 2020 was an online survey. Unfortunately, we've reached the age where you can't really do telephone surveys anymore. People are not answering their phone. You know, my phone rings. I look at it. Uh, spam. I'm not talking to them. A lot of people don't have landlines. There are laws about phone or do not call lists. It's hard to reach a random list of, uh, of cell phone owners. And, uh, you know, people don't answer the phone. They think they're marketing calls. So the question then is, well, you do a survey. There's two questions. One is, how do you actually do the survey? How do you reach people? So I've used a number of approaches. For example, I've gone to rabbinic organizations like the RCA. I say, listen, I'm doing a survey of uh, the community. They look at it, they say, this is interesting. They put it in their newsletter. And then a few hundred rabbis say, hey, there's a survey of the community. Uh, Here's a link of the survey. But again, only some of the rabbis pass it on to their community. And only some of the people respond. So that, that's what's called opt-in survey, where in other words, we're not calling people on the phone seven times and pestering them to make sure we're getting a representative sample. We're hoping that the people who respond are representative. That's not just a problem in, uh, in Jewish research. I mean, back in 2016, everyone said, well, why did the uh, political polls on the Clinton-Trump election, get it so wrong. I don't want to get into the, uh, the you know, the, the fact that it's we have an electoral college system, so that, that complicates things. But they said, you know, the problem is the shy Trump voter. That's what, it is. what is the shy Trump voter? The shy Trump voter is somebody that gets called on the phone because those surveys were still phone surveys and and asked who they were voting, and and, and they don't say why. They don't say because Trump was a. Uh, non-traditional candidate, and maybe they didn't want to admit that they were going to vote for him. So they might have said, I haven't decided yet. It is now pretty well understood that that actually is not what happened. 
That's not what happened. What actually happened was the people who were going to vote for Trump were actually a little bit harder to reach. They were less prone to answer their phone to a research service. You can, you can, you can maybe understand. I remember we're talking about you know, the Midwest, working people. You're not talking about your, your New York City MBA or Los Angeles osteopathic doctor. So you're talking about people that were by a few percentage points less likely to answer a survey, to answer the question. So it was really an issue of reaching them. It was kind of a representation, representational issue. What we do is when I do a survey, I do ask a bunch of demographic questions. So for example, if I'm doing a survey, I ask people, I always ask their denomination. Are you modern or centrist orthodox, yeshivish, chassidish, whatever? And, and I split those groups. I am very, I'm, I'm generally reluctant to, to talk about this is what the orthodox, orthodox community as a whole feels because our subgroups are so different. So let's say I do a survey and I get like, uh, and I get like 3,000 people who say I'm modern or centrist orthodox. I do ask them a few questions. I ask them about the income. I ask them where they live. Are we getting too much of the New York East Coast? There are numbers I can compare it to. I can say, yeah, where you, in terms of the, where they live, we're getting a representative sample. I can say in terms of income, we're getting a group that's a little bit more upscale. In terms of education, we're getting a group, that, for example, that's a little more educated. So, And that's generally the approach that's taken these days. It's kind of hard to get a representative sample coming in. What we do is we look at who responded and make adjustments. So the, there's something called stratified sample weighting, where if you, you could divide your sample into groups, so I might say I have, I have left-leaning modern orthodox centrist and right, and if I tend to get too many of one group in my statistics, when I combine them, I apply uh, weights to the various groups. So there are ways to do it. But, you know, um, we're a small community, the orthodox, a little bit, you know, a little bit hard to reach, a little bit hard to reach in terms of research. You know, Nate Silver, the famous pollster, uh, who was helpful in explaining the 2016 political results, said, don't think of research as a science. Don't think about you're going to ask questions, get an answer, do a plus minus 5% confidence interval, and you're done. And fertig. don't think that way. It's both an art and a science. And he said, and I, and he said, Nate Silver said, I find it totally appropriate <clears throat> to look at the numbers, but, but to meld, to meld into your understanding what you know about the group. So one of the things that I've been saying, that I've always said in my introduction, as I said, I explain, I'll say the group is this. I'll say we got more men than women for one of the yeshivish and Hasidic segments. This is why. We adjust for that, but read this with your understanding of the community. If you're a Hasidish guy, you understand your community. When you read what people in your community say about whatever the issue is, read it and interpret it with the understanding of what you what you already know. Since we're talking about the Hasidim, I just want to say one other thing, and that is the last survey we did about anti-Semitism, and I did it with Professor Sam Heilman, who's a very well-known sociologist. He said to me, Mark, let's translate this survey into Yiddish. I said, uh, how, how the heck are we going to do that? So we actually did it. We actually put the, we actually took our anti-Semitism survey, translated it into Yiddish, put it online, and we got about, we got 90 responses in Yiddish, which is kind of fun because there's only a handful of people who can actually read the results and understand them. <clears throat> but I find it uh, kind of fun to plow through it. I will say of the 90 or so people who responded, there were only six women. So, you know, survey, uh, there's a group called the Haredi, Haredi Research Group, which, uh, which is a multidisciplinary group I'm a member of. There's, there is an understanding that, that that's a group that is not well understood. So, 
Are you doing any work in, in Israel? I've interviewed Ellie Pillay from the Haredi Institute of Public Affairs and, and groups like that. Are you helping them at all or, or any such similar entities in Israel? Uh, no, I, I've spoken to people in Israel. There are people on our Haredi research group that are sociologists in Israel. When, when I do so, a lot of the surveys I do, uh, I do get back a, 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 some responses from Israel, Canada, Great Britain, France. Those are the main foreign countries. It has not really been enough to analyze. I, do, when I did a survey of politics, and I did get enough Americans in Israel who are registered voters to look at their leanings. That was kind, of, but it's a small group. My focus really has been on the on the United States primarily, up to now. What are the future surveys that you want to do? What are the most interesting <clears throat> questions that are as yet unanswered? Okay, so um, I, I am doing so. The survey we did a survey in 2017 uh, that that broad Pew type survey had questions about the role of women. We're going to do an update to that survey. I, I have a second draft of my questionnaire. It's so long. It is so long. It's scary. It's long enough that I might end up having to split it because I have an amazing, an amazing group of people who are giving me advice. If I told you some of their names, you'd say, wow, this is a great group. And, you know, people send me emails with, here's another 20 questions. Here's another 20 questions. So uh, we're going to be redoing that survey. High school kids, uh, like 11th and 12th graders, all, all my surveys have been ages 18 and plus. There was a survey done a few years ago. I forget the name of the rabbi who did it. I forget who it is. He lives in Israel. Did a survey of students at some of the America at some American schools. I really want to understand what's what's going on among the because my son is the principal of a Orthodox theology Jewish high school, and he he said he'll help me. But I want to understand what's on the what's on the mind of and what are the issues that high school kids. I'm talking about 11th and 12th graders. What are they dealing with? I mean, somebody said to me. We really need to know what they're doing so we can address it. And by doing might mean um, what they believe, their their doubts, the issues they're struggling with. It might be uh, substance abuse. It might be sexual experimentation. That's a challenge. We, we, uh, we, we had a section on questions about sexuality in our single survey. And I found that uh, only about 40% of the people were willing to uh, even answer those questions. So we ended up taking them out because... That would have been a kind of a very uh, non-representative sample. But I want to do a, a survey of high school kids and the parents of those kids. What's going on? Do the, what, what do the parents think at the priorities? You know, I, I would love to share that with the community. That's something I wanted. You know, after I do my big update of the 2017 survey for the community, I may come back to that issue. To the, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be challenging because you know they're they're, they're minors, so. Uh, but I've spoken to a few rabbis who says who said yes, and have them at the beginning of their survey have a drop-down menu where they can tell you what school they go to, and give that school a proprietary for their eyes only. This is what your kids are saying. Wow, we'd love that. That's what I've heard from a couple of principals, more than three. That will be obviously one that needs to be done carefully and with discretion and sensitivity. So that. That's on my list. I'm sure there'll be others. I'm sure after I do this big survey that my, the survey I'm doing now, there are always follow-ups. There are always a lot of follow-ups. So that's my goal, to give, give the community information, get them thinking. You know, the question is, should we ignore these issues or should we address them? I don't know about address, but should we ignore these issues or should we be aware of them? I would say, yeah, there's great value in, in, in awareness, as long as we're in an open society. I would say, finally, just 
what do you think is kind of your overall impression of the state of, I'd say the Jewish world, but let's say at least the state of the Orthodox world, having done all of these surveys, having ingested so much feedback, are you bullish on the community? Are you an optimist? Do you feel like the overarching trajectory is a positive one? Do you feel there are some really unaddressed or neglected challenges? What's kind of your overarching assessment of the community? So I'll, I am both pessimistic and optimistic. I'll tell you that. I'll, I'll give you the bad news first. I'm basically pessimistic about the fragmentation. You know, for, for, for a small group, we just have a lot of subgroups and a lot of arguments among the groups. Why am I optimistic? So I'll tell you very, very briefly. We did we did a survey on finances, the finances of Orthodox, the cost of an Orthodox home, which is which is very high, very high. And we had a long questionnaire. What are you paying for this? What do you pay for your for Jewish day school? What do you pay to be within walking distance of your shul of your shul? What do you pay for shmura masses? What do you pay for esrog? What do you pay for charity, tzedakah, making a wedding, sending a kid to a gap year? At the very, very end of the survey, I wanted to ask this question at the end because I want the people to be thinking about. It. Oh my goodness, I am paying a lot. At the end of the survey, we asked the following question. The question was bottom line. It's actually the only time I used the words bottom line in a question. I said, bottom line, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And the percentage of people that said yes was astronomical, astronomical. I mean, 90, 95% people said, yes, you know what? It's a burden, it's huge, but it's, uh, the percentage was highest actually among the yeshivish. Uh, the Shivish was, was was astronomically high. The Hasidic were pretty high. The modern Orthodox were high, a little bit lower, but, but also high. But they said it's worth it. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have any other life. Yes, it's a burden. Yes, I'm working hard. Yes, we're both working, but it's worth it. So from that perspective, I am I'm optimistic. So I'm pessimistic with the fragmentation, with the fact that we have so many for a small group, we have so many issues, and you know some of them are being addressed. But overall. There's just a lot of, you know, I asked the question, how important is your Orthodox Judaism to you as a part of your life? And just a very, very, very high percentage say it is totally important. It's totally important. 90% said, yes, my Orthodoxy is an important part of my life. And 10% said, not so much. But these are, it's just a lot of connections, a lot of connection to uh, Orthodox Jewish people feel connected and uh, they feel very much that this is a, an important part of their life. So that's, that's why I am optimistic. Mark Trencher is a great surveyor of the Orthodox Jewish community in particular. Fascinating insights, and I'm so grateful for your time and for your investment. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.